Episode 6 of The Cafeteria. It's so wonderful to be back with you again. I have missed you too. It's been a minute since we released Episode 5 with Phil Scott and the feedback has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you all so much to everyone out there who is listening and sending messages and emails. It just warms our heart to know that these conversations on The Cafeteria are resonating with you. Before I introduce today's guest on The Cafeteria, I have some news to share. After 10 years of touring Australia with my show, The Divine Miss Bet, yes, based on the people's princess, Bet Midler, I am so excited to let you know that the show will be headlining the Coliseum Theatre on November 25 and 26. No, it's not the Coliseum in Vegas. No, it's not the Coliseum in Rome. It's the Sydney Coliseum in Rooty Hill. Yes, we are playing two nights at the Sydney Coliseum Theatre on November 25 and 26. And we invite you all to be with us. Tickets are on sale now. I promise you the most incredible night of joy, of laughter, of reminiscing all of those incredible Bette Midler songs from the 70s. So I really hope you can join us. Okay, now on to today's guest. My guest on the cafeteria today is an Australian icon, a one of a kind. From day one, he was told he would never work in the industry. A gay man of Greek and Maltese heritage, which in the 80s in Australia meant he was largely uncastable. But that didn't stop this artist for a second and thank goodness it didn't. Cut to headlining some of the world's most prestigious arts festivals, feature roles on screen and treading the boards for the likes of the Sydney Theatre Company and the Victorian Opera. His message? Never give up. Talking everything from his fascinating obsession and synchronicity with Janis Joplin to how he shaped his career, would you please welcome to the cafeteria His Highness and multiple Helpman Award winner, Mr. Paul Capsis. Hello, darling. Your Majesty. You may. Who is Paul Capsis? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm, I guess, I consider myself a survivor somehow, that I've managed to do the job I love for so long. It'll be 40 years next year. 40 years. I'm a little cuckoo, I think. A bit, a bit eccentric, maybe. <gasps> you don't say. I know. I know, right? Yeah, I don't know. Is that answer? Is does that answer it? I, I don't know if that answers it. What makes up Paul Capsis? Oh gosh, uh, so many different things. I'm influenced by so many things in my life: my history, my upbringing, my childhood, my family, my culture, school life, high school life, and then out into the world, and then trying to be a performer which is still an issue. It's still a tough industry. It's, as, it's maybe probably more tough now than it was when I started out, actually, in, weird, in a weird way. How so? The world has changed. We are so influenced by the device, the internet, that world now dominates. When I grew up, thankfully, everything in comparison, it wasn't easy, but it was way simpler and clearer. Now it's like really murky terrain to get through. I mean, the COVID, the pandemic itself was a major problem. It caused lots of problems. And 
I don't think the industry was great before the pandemic, but everything was exasperated because of the pandemic. And we're not out of it yet. And, you know, we're still in it, I think. Our work, our performing lives are all affected. And also it's hard to ignore the the two years and how people came after us because we dared say we're having a hard time because I didn't get that email. I I thought we were a democracy. I thought we were allowed to speak about how we feel. But that's... That's part of the problem, the perception of what an artist's life is and the perception, I think, by a lot of people, probably 85%, is that we live frivolous lives. Because I say to people, unless you've been a performer, an artist, a singer, an actor, unless you've actually done it, you don't know. Well, how do you do your life as an artist, as a performer? If you were sitting across the table from someone who was looking at you as a frivolous person who was fabulous and got to dress up and and play dress ups and, you know, just go to the theatre every night and, and, you know, be applauded and receive standing ovations and, and, you know, what would you say to that person from across the table? What would you want them to understand about the way your, what it takes from you to be a performer? What would you tell them? That's huge because that's complex, that question in itself. If I was to give a short answer, I'd say the performing itself is, is, the, is the thing. It's the performing. It's the audience. It's the moment. The rest is hard work. Yeah. <laughs> all, of the, all of it is hard work. I mean, and people know that who are in the industry, that you are the preparation that you do, the way you have to look after yourself, the way you you give up a lot and people don't know that part of it. There the, is a uh, huge sacrifice. The misconception is is it's red carpets and it's flashlights and it's glitter, but it's not. It is certainly not. You know, the performing itself, as that, that's what I would say to someone. If you don't love the work, if you don't love that part of it, then you won't make it because you have to be that committed to get on a stage and there are so many things that we must overcome. Obstacles, people, industry, managers, agents, producers. There is so much. Getting we, in the door for the audition in the first place. That, it, indeed. Prepping for the audition, making sure that you're well, making sure that you're well slept, making sure that you're prepared, making sure that your nervous system is in a state where your brain can open and learn the material. There is so much and back and back and back and back and back it goes. Absolutely. And then the performing is only 10% of that 100% of your life. Yep, and it's worth it. It absolutely is. Isn't it? (gasps) That's what it's about. That's why we do it. And it's about your skill. It's about your commitment. It's about what techniques you've developed and how you read an audience and uh, the connection that is the major part of it the connection the connection to audience and in even when we are on a stage there is no guarantee the audience will respond well or applaud i mean i've been doing it for so long i've had every kind of audience you can imagine i've had hostile audiences i've had things thrown at me i've had clapping and standing ovations i've had what did you have thrown at you? And I hope it was underwear. 
I wish it was. Perhaps they were soiled. I'm trying to remember. God, I, I, I immediately go back to the Blues Brothers with the chicken wire in front of you. Oh, my God. I, yes, I saw that film in 1980 when I was 16 and I thought, oh, my God, that's rough. But it is. It that's is it. rough. When I started out, I was doing talent quests in pubs. I played the Alawa Hotel. And <gasps> I did a drag act. In, I did Tina Turner or Janis Joplin. I can't remember who. But I used to do the whole, cost, the whole look back then. And... Um, the audience were heckling me and waiting to get me. And my friend who had the car said, we have to get out of here now. They're waiting in with chains because I was, as Janice, giving it to them. As Janice, I'm Janice and I'm, and I know I read so much about Janice and she had her whole thing with the Hells Angels and fights with them. There's a concert, a famous concert which she did in San Rafael and really out of it, drunk, bikey girl and bikey guy yelling at Janice and she started yelling back and next thing there was a big punch-up between the three of them in the show. <laughs> and I think they knocked, they hit her face <gasps> and a scar, I can't remember now. And what, what year was this, When roughly? I did Janice, I, this was in the 80s. Right, so. But, uh, yeah, I went to run away and, and, I, and the thing is the only way out was through the pub and because I'd taken off my wig, my makeup, and I was just me again, little old Paul, with my friend. We walked through and we could see them seething, but they didn't recognise me and we got away. Well, that's terrifying. How many, <laughs> how many experiences like that did you come up against? Oh, a lot in the early days, especially the early days, because also I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I'm untrained. I didn't go to NIDA, but I wanted to perform. So I put myself in a lot of, I guess, dangerous. Compromising situations. Yeah. I did put myself in a lot of crazy situations. And when I think about it later and I'm like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? I could have had my head kicked in by those people. Well, my mind goes immediately to that scene in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm-hmm. With Guy Pearce. When I saw it, I had a flashback. You know, I had a flashback. A, um, interesting side story with that was that Stephen Elliott wanted me to play that role initially and would come to the Aubrey Hotel and watch me perform and heckle me oh. by himself. And I remembered him when years later. Oh, actually, it wasn't that long after. It was about a year and a half later. I ran into him, of all places, L.A., in the Beverly Hills Centre, on an escalator. On an escalator. I was, I was going to say, it's not a lift. It wouldn't oh, have been honey, a lift. Oh, honey, it wasn't a lift. It was an escalator. <laughs> I was with Gia Caridis and I just got to L.A. and there's this guy calling out Paul Caps. I'm like, what the hell is happening now? The people you run into in LA, darling. I know. And he, he said, come down, I need to talk to you now. And I'm like, Gia's like, you better go. And I don't know. So I go down. He goes, my name's Stephen Elliott. I'm making a, a feature film and you, you have to be in it. And I went, oh, my God, what? And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm doing cabaret shows in LA. I have a thing booked, a season, or whatever. And he goes, but you have to audition, you have to screen test now for me. I went, but I've got a commitment here. And this was so bizarre. Wow. I had to take myself to a place in LA. I had to bribe strangers to drive me there because LA is a car place. There's no bus and train. I do the screen test for the role of Guy Pierce and the role of Hugo Weaving. I did two screen tests for two roles. Then I had to take the video cassette 
to the special place in the airport. She had to LA. deliver her own cassette tape. She had to deliver her own. <laughs> There's no glamour That's in this. That's showbiz, folks. There's no glamour. Long story short, the producers didn't want me because I had no film, no TV, and barely any acting experience back then. I was a cabaret performer. So what? I know. So what? Now there'd be a petition and a, and there'd be people cancelling here left, right and centre. <laughs> so is it fair to say then that Paul Capsis inspired a role in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Oh, I don't know if oh, I would go I that Oh, I think it's fair far. to say. Oh, I think so. No, I think that I reckon that uh, Stefan was studying a lot of people on the mm. strip back then, Cindy mm. Pastel and mm-hmm. a lot of others. And mm-hmm. there was a person who performed like the character that Guy played. Yeah. And Corby Beard, that's who that's inspired by. Oh, I see. Okay. Corby Beard was this beautiful, hot young guy who used to like perform in semi-drag and every now and then he'd do drag. But he, And I think that's who he based him on. Mm-hmm. But I think when Stefan saw me performing in drag and live, which was a novelty, uh, with Sigourney playing the piano, I don't know if it went to another level, but he said to me there was something about my screen test or whatever that for him was, you know, where that character was, but the producers had the last word and they went with someone experienced. Sure. And of course I didn't know who that was. I didn't I didn't I never watched Days of Our Lives or whatever it was that he was on and I didn't know. I knew I knew him in uh I knew of him in uh, I think it was in Greece the musical back in the 80s. And I thought, "Oh my god, he's very straight looking gorgeous guy, right?" And um you know, back then people were not happy about the casting, but we didn't petition, we didn't we didn't have internet to gang up and pile on back mm. then. Mm. We were angry especially once we heard who was in the film. Mm. And for us it was like, oh, same old, same old, you know. And for many, many years I couldn't watch the film because I knew it so well and I really wanted it. I really wanted that role. But Stefan was very respectful when he met, he phoned me at home to say, I'm really sorry. Uh, I wanted you but my producers did not. Well, that's a beautiful thing. That's yeah. a beautiful phone call to receive. Absolutely. That doesn't happen now. It's, well, it doesn't. I, I, I dare say it wouldn't have happened much then either. You know, it's it's to a person, isn't it? And that's that's a lovely thing for you to at least know mm. in but your I heart. But I thought Guy was fantastic. When I did see it, I thought, oh, my God, he, his interpretation is so, would be so different to how I would do have done that role, I suppose. But, yeah, he did a great job. Having come up against so much... Adversity. Where did you find the strength to carry on with this career after being told you will never work, audiences do not like you, competitions are not for you? What made you keep going? Well, that's a good question. What the hell? Insanity? I think that's where the insanity (laughs) comes. That's where it kicks in because that's like masochistic. Mm. When I think about what I've put myself through to be a performer, I think it's 100% 100% masochism. But on the other side of that, I was very mindful, especially when I started, to be to take care of myself, as in not to indulge in things that were outside of what the performing life is, which is drugs, alcohol, which, you know, the idea of 
our industry is that it's a big part of it. Well, it is a big part of it. Well, it is for some. It is. And we all know we've got a litany of names of people who've died and destroyed themselves and money and fame and all that stuff. This is well documented, very well documented. But a simple answer is because of my family, the ethics of my family and how I was drilled by my grandmother, my Maltese grandmother, my mother, my father, my Greek family, my Maltese family. You know, their whole thing was work ethics mm. first. You know, religion was there up there as well and other things, but work mm. because of survival. And I think that's where I get it from because why on earth would you put yourself through it? You know, the kind of attacks we, we get sometimes, you know, the fact that somebody who reviews your show can get personal with you and I've had that, obviously, 40 years in the business. You know, somebody I don't even know. I've never met the person in Melbourne and they're writing for the age and they're attacking me. They don't like me. They don't like my voice. They don't like whatever. And that's fair enough. You cannot please everyone. You will always have your enemies. You will always have the people who just don't like you because of the shape of my nose. Mm -hmm. You cannot control that. And once I figured that out, that was a major part of it, actually. And a relief. A and major a relief. relief. Yeah. Your addiction and your infamous relationship with Janice Joplin as a channeler of Janice, where did that start for you? Where did that infatuation with Janice Joplin start for you? What about Janice Joplin is it for you? And is it because you were looking to get into a rock band in the 80s and struggle because of your style? And, you know, considering that time in Australia and the world was the height of Freddie Mercury, Reg Livermore, David Bowie and Michael Jackson's careers, how is it even possible <laughs> that a rock band didn't snatch you up and make you their front person? Is that where the obsession with Janice came from and want, like wanting to emulate, was that part of it? Because you found that she would be the channel for you to be that front person of a rock band? Well, the immediate answer to that question, why, is that Australia was extremely homophobic mm -hmm. in the music industry. Mm. So that's that part of it because I remember they liked my voice and they thought I was very weird and interesting, but they wouldn't go there because of the scene, the music scene in Australia then. You can imagine the pub scene, the rock groups, the Jimmy Barnes, and, you know, it was a full-on blokey thing. And um, But my thing with Janice goes way back. It's really bizarre. And even to this day, I don't know how this even happened. But I do remember when I first heard her name, I was around 10, uh, 11, something like that, and I was a crazy fan of Susie Quattro. Ah. And Skyhook, so I, I was already – and Tina – I can Tina Turner. Mm. So I was already obsessed with tough women on stage and singers, you know. I already liked them tough and big and Tina and the belting of her voice and the eye-cats and the dancing and Susie Quattro with her big bass and her leather jumpsuit. So I already had that going Just on. Just fierce women. Yeah, and Skyhooks, men in makeup and feathers and – Costumes. That, that was, and they were my first obsession. And then, so I was in a room at my grandmother's house 
And my mother's then boyfriend, a man named Sam, a Sicilian Australian, was telling my brother, my older brother, who was a Kiss fan, about these artists who had recently died or just died not long ago. And he was saying to my brother, there was a guy called Jimi Hendrix and he used to play the guitar with his teeth. And I'm in the other room and my eyes are getting bigger and my ears are... And he goes, and there was a woman called Janis Joplin and she was the first real female rocker and she used to perform on on stage with a bottle in her hand and her breasts were sticking out and she was so rough. And that was the first time I heard the name Janis Joplin. Now, interestingly, when... Any, all the articles about Susie Quattro in those days when I'd read them, and I didn't really have good comprehension, you know, my English wasn't great in terms of reading and stuff because I always growing up listening to Greek or Maltese, you know, the English wasn't great. So I remember there was they'd say, Susie Quattro is the new Janis Joplin or she's the next one or whatever. And then I'd go, oh, my God, that's the, that's the woman – Sam talked about. With the bottle and the boob. Bottle and the boob and, and, you know, rough on stage and the hair and he said she wore no makeup. And then I remember I used to have a, a curfew. My grandmother would let me go into the city to look for vinyl and there was a secondhand shop in Pitt Street. I think it was called Gould's. Yes, yep, it was. You know, and wall-to-wall old magazines and books. But there was a book in the window and had Janice and a photo of a woman with her face covered in a red light and she was like throwing her hair in the microphone and I'm like, is that her? I went into the shop and I said to the lady, excuse me, can I look at the book Janice Joplin in the window? She handed me the book and in the middle of this book, and the book was by a guy called David Dalton, who travelled with Janice and knew her well. And he, this was the first, one of the first books that came out after she died. So it was published like 1972. And in the middle of the book were lots and lots of black and white photographs of this woman called Janice Joplin. And that's where it started. I hadn't even heard her sing. Her image was the first thing that got me and I'm, the, I'm still got by her. To me, what I saw in her appearance was a male-female. I saw male and female. Her face, she didn't wear makeup. She had bad skin. She had a big nose. She wore particular types of clothing, sort of... Baggy, shapeless Sex worker clothing, like, you know, showing a lot. And then there were the, you know, the gold pants and the feathers and all those things that she did later. Right. Oh, so of all your Janice covers that you do, what's your favourite to perform? Oh, my God. I did Get It While You Can for a long time because, I don't know, there was something about the lyrics of Get It While You Can. and Is that one on your album? I think I did. Yeah, I recorded it. I think there's a live version. Maybe there's a, a, a studio one. I can't remember. Well, let's have a little listen to it now. Everybody's fighting with each other You got no one you can count on, do you? Not even your brother And if someone comes along 
you gonna give him some love and affection? Ozzy get what he can. Taking a gamble on some sorrow But then, who cares, baby? Cause we may not be here tomorrow And if someone comes along You're gonna give him some love and affection Get him what he can One of your war stories, one of your best war stories from the industry. Apart from those dreadful early days of suffering. <laughs> Tell me about the later days of suffering. <laughs> well, I did a play at Belvoir. Mm-hmm. I was playing the lion in an adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. <gasps> it was very strange, this production that was directed by the brilliant Adina Jacobs. It was an all-female company, like the director, the designer. I think no, actually, Max Leanvert, so that no, there were some men involved, but I was the only male performer. Okay. A lot of it was about a meditation on The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. So I got, I went crazy and I read every one of the books. Oh, my God, I went nuts. However, this production <laughs> had very little reflection of the show, the movie, the, you know. So it was a very out-there production. And I was playing a lion and I, and I used to tape my face up with sticky tape and I, you know, made my nose like this and I, like a scarred lion in battle who was terrified of the world. Wow. Yeah, I wore a, a red. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But I, if, we, if we don't laugh, we'll cry. We'll cry. Right? <laughs> so you're taping your face, you're so the taping, lion. So I've got a Janice Red long wig. You which can't escape this no one. No one knew. A, ju- a junior Jan- reference, a Janice yeah. wig. Right. So I'm, you know, the lion, so the, the, the mane of ha- red hair. But it was like a Janice. Anyway, I had this amazing ripped up uh, top with lots of holes. Like the lion has really had a rough time. And a leather pink kilt. Wow. I've never seen or heard of a leather pink kilt before. Well, I have of to tell you. Of course you're the first to, 
to fashion this. Right. Groundbreaking. <laughs> I have a side story to tell you about that. So I was working with the famous, the great Eileen Kramer, who at that time was at only 100. And she was playing Dorothy. So Dorothy emerges at the end of the piece in a wheelchair. So she's 100. This in, actress is 100. She's 107 now. Eileen Kramer is a dancer from um, uh, from the fifties, and she's incredible woman. And I, she's a friend. I mean, she's she's so, one hundred and seven years old. She's about to be, God willing, one hundred and eight. My God! Yeah, and we did that, and she was a hundred, a hundred, and she was Dorothy at the. So it was so talk about goosebumps. So Dorothy oh. comes out. She's a hundred in her Dorothy outfit in a wheelchair with her red slippers. But she she's still got those slippers. She's performing as Eileen does now, and she's works from the torso up, and she's does all this extraordinary, beautiful hand movements and her face. Wow. But we were backstage. This is like preview. I know it's a <laughs> hilarious. So it's just Eileen and I, and I'm in my lion outfit with the tapes and the pink. And Eileen says to me. You don't look like a lion. <laughs> you look like a North Shore chick. Oh. I nearly <laughs> fell over. I wanted to die. And I thought, you know what? You're right. A scarred North Shore chick perhaps, but anyway. Well, they all are, darling. Darling. So Eileen was very, you know, very honest. But the thing is, so I'm on stage and I was having issues in that theatre. There was a cold, something in that theatre was cold. I could never get warm. I also think there's an energy in the Belvoir Theatre. There's a weird mm, energy. That's interesting. I feel, I feel it. But anyway, I'm on stage. I'm doing my big scene with Dorothy. So I'm emerging as this horrific lion coming out. A scarred North Shore scarred, girl. <laughs> you know, and I sing a Judy song, which I picked, um, I found, I'm always chasing rainbows. And I went to Adina and I said, you know, Judy sang this because we we're trying to find the song for the lion. I think there's an interesting connection to Judy, her having played Dorothy, the song itself. I'm always chasing. You know, I'm doing that. Yeah. Acapella. So I do the song and then I go to attack Dorothy. But then, you know, something happens and Dorothy does something and the lion collapses. But before that happened, this particular night, to an audience who were not into the show at all, <laughs> um, I did something I didn't normally do and I did this fast move because there's a lot of improvisation. I know it's hard to believe. But in the rehearsal, <laughs> a lot of crawling on the floor and grabbing our crotches and things like that. And that happen. was just in the dressing room. Oh, love. <laughs> I was in the I was in the rehearsal room before we even got to the theatre. I mean, I can't even tell you what happened in that in that production. I mean, the Tin Man, played by a woman, fists Dorothy in a glass box. Are we allowed to say that on <laughs> national radio? Oh, you're so sweet. We'll national radio, soon, darling. One I can day. see the petition now. They're waving flags. <laughs> they'll be a, they'll attack us the minute we leave the venue. So. Dorothy's there and we do this unspoken uh, scene. And I did this thing where I turned really fast to frighten Dorothy. My calf muscle snapped 
on stage. Ow. And it literally felt like someone cutting a string in my leg and I collapsed onto the floor. (laughs) (laughs) I collapsed onto the floor. Couldn't move. Was incredible pain. And Dorothy's looking at me like, what the... Is this some offer you're doing in the middle of the is this, show? Is this to get back at me for the North Shore girl comment? Well, that wasn't her. That was Eileen who was oh, backstage sorry. and she's 100. <laughs> no, no, this was young Dorothy played oh, by the young- wonderful Emily Millage who it was extraordinary. But Emily's like going, mmm. That's an odd choice. And I'm looking at her crawling and, you know, in a lot of pain. Yeah. But I'm looking at her going... But I had the the tape, so she couldn't really read what was going on. <laughs> your and the kill, the pink. Your face the, is taped, so she pink. can't tell the pain that you're in. The oh, pink, Paul. and I'm crawling. <laughs> and there, no one knows what's going on. The audience are like, oh, for God's sake. Where is this fucking piece going? Right? So I crawl around on the floor in the scene. And... <laughs> She's like, I don't know what the hell is going on. But later on, I'm supposed to do a tap routine with the other two, the scarecrow and the witch. Also. And now I'm crawling. I'm off the stage and they're all going, what the hell is going on? I mean, I don't know, but my leg, I can't move. I can't. So I did the rest of the show crawling. I had a lot to do. <laughs> This was like the first, I don't know, 25 minutes of the piece. <laughs> and they're going, do we need to cancel? I'm like, cancel? What are you talking about? Uh, crawling I'll lion. cancel myself before you cancel <laughs> me. Well, that's one of my, you know, recent comments. I'll cancel myself before anyone cancels me, honey. But honestly, they were like, oh, my God. And I went, no, no. We're not can- we're not stopping the show. The show must go on, <laughs> which we've been bred with, drilled since the day we started at five. And I'm like, I'm not ca-. so. I did the rest of the show, crawling on the floor, and then I. My went, God, dare I ask, what did the reviews say? Well, no, <laughs> the, the, the season had already we'd already opened. Mm. This was a week or so, a week and a half or so, something into the season. So the next day they're like, oh, my God, you've got to go to your doctor. You've got to give us a report. We've got, we don't know what we're going to do. So I go to my doctor and my doctor says, you've torn your muscle in your calf and you need to get off it. And I said to my doctor, I am not cancelling a show. And he went, that's ridiculous. He said, you need to stop because this won't heal. I said, I've got a three-week season. He goes, oh, no, this isn't good. No, 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 no. Only in show business. Director comes to the theatre. Paul, um, what are you doing? You have to dance. And I said, for God's sake, this production, I can crawl for every performance. I'm a line. I can get on my all fours. And you know what? I crawled for about two or three shows and then I went to a um, physiotherapist. Mm -hmm. So then I did the show on crutches. And by the and I didn't heal. And by the end of the season, I was with a walking stick. So there was an injured lion. Everyone thought it was part of the show. Doris, I mean, she, the lion is scratched and damaged. 
and Dorothy's a hundred in a wheelchair. I said to the <laughs> I know, right? And I say to the director, but no, do you know it doesn't matter? And she was worried, you know, because then, of course, I couldn't, I never did About the you t- or the show? Well, <laughs> we'll all never know. Of it. I mean, the problem it was for me was the show was so out there and so incredible. I mean, I think three people liked it. If, I don't know. And uh, they were the cast. Uh, well, I think there were like <laughs> oh, three really? who loved it. But, you know. But that's all right. You've got to try these we things. We did it. And I, I didn't, we did not cancel one show. That's amazing. Talk Congratulations. about Congratulations. But, again, only stories. in show business. I've got my doctor saying, get stop. off the stage. You have to stop. My director's like, but you've, you compromised my vision, which was this. So the other two had to tap dance. But I kept going, you know. I mean, that is a thing in, for us. I've lost my voice. I've gone to get steroids. I mean, oh. other war stories. Oh. I arrive in Tasmania to work with Bev, the wonderful Bev Kennedy. At, Hello, uh, Miss Bev. Sending I love. I love you, darling. We all do. We love you. And we did this uh, three nights, I think it was, for the, I can't remember, was it uh, Tasmanian? Oh, I can't oh, remember. Festival of Voices. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. one of the early ones. Yeah. Arrive in Hobart. I've got the show that night. I have no voice. Oh. Something that happened. old thing. Something happened with the flight. My ears did something. They didn't pop. And I couldn't hear anything. Oh, dear. And I'm talking and loud. So then you lose your voice. And I lost my voice and I have a big show of singing with Bev. So I'm like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. I can't do the show. I can't, I can't even speak. How am I going to sing? They go, okay, we have a, vo- a voice specialist here. We're going to send you to this guy. This was the afternoon. Of the show. Of the show. Right. Two, two or three shows. I think it was two shows. I'm like, I went to this doctor. I'll never forget this because he was right there in Hobart on the waterfront. You know, went into his office, walked up a few steps, and he goes, oh, you know, goes on about other things, nothing to do with my voice. And I'm sitting there going, get to it, doc. Oh my God, what are you doing? I have a show tonight. What the hell are you talking about? He's talking about, I don't know, Elvis. I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And um, not the time, doctor. And I said, um, excuse me, doctor, but I have a show tonight. I'm really worried. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really worried. He goes, oh, that, oh, you'll be singing like a bird. <laughs> you should see Paul's face now, everyone listening. It's. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, no, steroid tablet. You'll be singing better than you've ever sung. Prednis alone? I don't know what it was. Mm, prednisone or prednisone. He gave me a whole box and mm. he said to me, you take one tonight and one for the show tomorrow, you throw them out because they're highly addictive. Yes. <gasps> well, I was hitting notes. I oh, know. I was about to say, did the heavens open for you? Yeah, but <laughs> what else happened? Not only was I hitting Mariah Carey dog notes, I was also <laughs> off my face. Bev said to me, oh, love. She went on a safari. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I talked about that night, but I remember my teeth were vibrating and I could sing better than you've ever than sung. I've ever sung and I was hitting notes, I was doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but also my brain was affected. I was talking anyway, second night, I had my voice back. 
incredible. Mm. And I couldn't even does, speak. And it, but it doesn't it doesn't come without the stress and the worry and and every all of that stuff that you just don't need before a performance. No, and I don't take normally I don't take anything before no. I don't drink. I don't even eat. Our, I have all this, you know, rituals like we all do. I never eat before a show. Right? I mean, Robin Archer eats a steak before going on. I was backstage with her once and she's like, you know, eating and she, about, and she came out and she was extraordinary. Some performers can do it. Well, meat, meat is very grounding. So having having a steak can help ground right? your body. But for me, having having something in my stomach, it's just that heaviness. Mm. I, I feel... Yeah, against our diaphragm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we were talking about that before. And that's the kind of thing... Uh, people ask me these questions a lot about, you know, how do you... What do you do? And, um, and I just... The stuff is, as you know, it's really actually simple. Mm. You drink room temperature water. Correct. You try not to speak on that day. You don't drink alcohol. You know, that's it. It's simple. But, you know, if you want to catch up with your friends or have a long conversation on the phone that day and you've got to do, you know, La Caja Fall that night or whatever it is you're going to be doing. Or press. You oh know, if you're God, doing, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in a fly-in, fly-out or a FIFO festival where you fly-in, fly-out and they pack your day with publicity and you're going and going and going, oh. you bloody get to 3 p.m., Oh. And you're exhausted and you haven't even started to warm up yet. You haven't Ooh. even started to do your face. And, you know, that's when you that's when you go and try and find something that's going to energise you, like mm-hmm. a like Red Bull or a Coca-Cola or something. And then it's so easy to get into that spiral of um, non-self-care because you're just trying to – you're trying, to, you're trying to survive. Trying to make that next show. Absolutely. And there are so many rituals and so many things we do to get us there. Yeah. And some people go through quite a lot to get there, whether it's a role in a play or, you know, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So full on our, our industry, our world of making performance. We're athletes. Well, I, think I really, I really don't see the difference between sport and entertainment at all. I agree. I totally agree. And in fact, we have a, you know, I mean, athletes have. We're in training all year round. All year round, twenty four seven. There's no off button. People don't realise, you know, when we're doing shows or we're preparing for shows, and family want us to go to a wedding or to, and you're like, I can't. I've got a commitment to this thing I'm doing. It's the thing I. It's my job. It's not a frivolous, fun thing that we do. And a lot of this people- This is work. This is work. And a lot of people don't know that about our work. That, that's what we do, a lot of us. Well, your career has spanned such an incredible breadth of work, including having graced the Sydney Theatre Company stages, Victorian Opera. I mean, you must get offered so much work. What is your process of choosing your next project? That is so interesting. And, and I mean in regards to being a gun for hire, not, not when you're creating your own piece, but when you have work offers on the table, what is it about that one that will make you go, yep, that's what I want to be involved in? Well, to quote Kate Blanchett in an interview I saw about 10 years ago, she said, the thing that makes a career is the thing you say no to that makes a career, not the thing you say yes to. And that has never left me, that idea. Isn't that so true and so wise? Well, that's Kate Blanchett and that's Mm. her experience. But Mm. my experience is very difficult to say no. 
But also I'm not that, I mean, the perception of me is that I'm offered a lot of work. But there are a lot of people who won't work with me. There are a lot of producers who will never give me a job. I, will, I could name them, but I won't. Why do you think that is? Because I'm not, I'm still that person with the high voice, you know, who has created a, 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 a place, a, a space for myself by the grace of whatever power you believe in that I found my tribe. I found, I know that sounds really wanky, doesn't no, it? No, it doesn't. And I spoke about this with Ruben Kay on his podcast as well. Having not belonged for so long, mm-hmm. finding the tribe, and especially in the cabaret scene in Australia mm. as well, I think that that tribe is a very beautiful one, very supportive. Um, we all really deeply want each other to succeed. And that's that's where I met you. You know, the 2013 Adelaide Cabaret Festival when I was there performing my Christine McVie show, which our darling Kate Sobrano, one of our greatest champions and supporters, commissioned my work. And then from there, we ended up travelling to Honkers together. Hong Hong Kong. Kong. Lang Kwai Fong when you got your suit. God, remember that. And that was a wild time in Australia. The bushfires and changing government and it was huge. Hong Kong. What a what a place that is alive. I know. I mean, I just was like, I want to live here. I have friend. I've played there a lot. I'm very fortunate, and I have a close friend that lives there and everything. But to me, what I found that particular trip was how alive mm. that city is. Or maybe not now. I don't know. Maybe not now with COVID and what else has gone on. But there was a vibrancy. And I thought, God, I don't even know if Melbourne has this kind Mm. of level vibrancy. And I love Melbourne so much because of its, you know, embrace of culture. You know, I think every country needs culture and it needs it. It has to have it. If you don't have it. You're not alive. You're dead. Mm -hmm. I always say a country is not a living country unless it has embraced culture. And in this country, Australia... There's been a resistance, let's be honest, but it's there. It it exists despite the focus on sport, politics, whatever you want to call all that stuff. I say amen to that, Paul Capsis. Have you ever wanted to leave the industry? How many times times in your mind have you quit showbiz? Oh, so many times, so many times. I could tell you 2000, the year 2000, things were bleak. Things were not going well, and um, what does that what does that look like for you? Things not going well. Oh, An empty book. Totally, no work. No one wanted to work with me. No one, you know. And I performed lots of my cabaret shows around all the little little clubs, and I, you know, kept kept going and kept doing and kept hoping, you know. And it's <laughs> the thing is, you know, the thing I wasn't being asked you know, can you come and do this festival or can you come? Because that's what the plight of an Australian artist is. I can't talk about what happens in New York or London or San Francisco or LA or Beirut. I can't talk about what it's like for artists in other, other countries. I can only talk about Australia because I never, I've never left Australia. Even though I've worked a lot, very fortunately, around, you know, various places in the world, very lucky to have performed in London and Malta and um, Canada and New York and whatever, but um, I can only talk about what it's like here, you know, the Australian experience for artists. And what I've noticed is unless you leave Australia, 
and really try, which is not easy, very few of us, a very tiny percent, make it. Most of us don't. For me, what kept me here when I started out, because I had those people say to me, you shouldn't be here. Your voice is too strange. You're whatever, fill in the blank. Audiences don't like you. This competition won't work for you. All of it. Go to Berlin. Go to New York. I remember that was very commonly said to me when I started out. And I'm like, no, bugger that. This is my place here. I'm from here. Things need to change. I had no internet. I had no mob, no contacts. When I had this mindset, I was, there was no cabaret scene back then. There was the comedy scene. I was with Judith Lucy and all these people in comedy doing tours and not doing well because I was a cabaret performer who wasn't doing comedy. By accident, I was funny, but I wasn't a comic. So people be like, what is this rubbish? This isn't comedy. And people say that and walk out. You know, I, I, there was no place for that kind of a thing. And I was doing, you know, weird little um, uh, eyewear opening, weird <laughs> little things like that, you know. Wow. And then started very gradually, you know, Jeffrey Rush saw me in a play at Belvoir downstairs in 1991 doing my first ever show doing all the divas. In those days I did all the women in drag. I never, you know. And then later in L.A. an old man came up to me, an older gentleman came up to me and um, I was doing my cabaret in L.A. doing the drag and the dead women. And he came, he waited for everyone to leave I was, you know, stride of stage saying, thank you for coming and your kind comments. And this man was in a suit. He was in 80-something. And he said to me, I worked with Sophie Tucker. I was a dancer with Sophie Tucker. You do not need to do this. And with his fingers, he went up and down. I was still in drag. My face, my makeup was run off my hair because I sweat, you know. And he said to me, you don't need to do this. He goes, you have a voice and you should be a singer and... And I remember him saying that to me was very confronting. I didn't want to hear that because I was starting to do something, but I was in drag. And although when I started out, I wanted to be an actor and a singer in a band, drag never came into it. But what had happened to me was that my entering the world of drag, hence, you know, people like Stephen Elliott watching me and Jeffrey Rush, Rush watching me coming to the show, then it gradually built and went on from there. And when that man said that to me, I came back to Australia and I auditioned for Priscilla, didn't get it. I actively started to do what I do now, which was then I started to wear suits, I started to wear jewellery and just, well, makeup still, but not drag. It was a channeling. It took a long, exactly. It took a long time though. My fans didn't like me out of drag. A lot of people would say, I don't like you at doing this. But you found an entirely new audience and you are now one of the most revered artists in Australia. Oh, darling, thank you. It yeah. has been 
such a pleasure talking to you today and thank you, you so too, much. You Catherine. My God, I've loved this conversation. Wow. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And this is what the cafeteria sets out to do is help people understand what it is that we do and how mm-hmm. we do it. And you have given us such a beautiful insight into what makes Paul Capsis, who Paul Capsis is. I think we will need to do a follow-up interview because I've got pages and pages of questions oh here God, that we didn't kidding? even get to, darling. But when, oh, wow. when I have you back, we will talk about Angela's Kitchen because oh. you mentioned your grandmother so often. Mm. So I'll leave you with one final question. What is next for Paul Capsis? Well... Just the other day, we're I, getting we're getting a little. Oh, I know. What are we getting? I got offered La Caja Fola. Congratulations! I know. We are getting the exclusive, like really soon. November is oh, it's doing just six shows, and I've been offered the lead or that character with I don't know who the other people are yet. I'm like. Who am I working with? Can I find out? <laughs> Can I just get a little, Is that a little new? tip, please? It's that new. Well, thank you for giving us the exclusive. Paul Capsis will be starring in Locasia Fall. Locasia Fall, darling. Oh. With the great director, Australian director, who is overseas doing operas in Ireland as we speak, Cameron Menzies. Now, he's somebody who I worked with 100 years ago. He was the assistant to the director and I thought, look at this talent and has not been able to get a gig here. And now, now two doing of our operas. greatest talents will be working <gasps> together. Paul Capsis. <laughs> God, I can't wait to see you in that role. How oh, fabulous. Darling. Congratulations. And thank you for giving us the scoop here on the cafeteria this afternoon. Oh. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you, thank you with us today. Oh, you're, you're the best. Thank you. Right back at you. I love you, Paul. Thanks love for you, coming. Love you, darling. And there we have it, folks, Mr. Paul Capsis. Paul, thank you so much for spending some time with us this week. If you're loving the Cafeteria podcast, go ahead and share it with your friends. Send it out there. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. And please don't forget to check out the Divine Misfit tickets, which are on sale now via my website, katherinealcorn.com. Thanks for being with us today, and I'll see you next time on the Cafeteria. Cafeteria.